you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? We're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 360, a.k.a. year eight, week five, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I am your host, Mr. Richie Rich, along with MC and KS. And since this is your live, regularly scheduled uh, show, we do this on Clubhouse, the Anarchist Experience on Clubhouse, or you can at me at Riches for Rich, R-I-C-H-E-S, the number four, R-I-C-H. And then you'll get the little notification when I start the room. Um, otherwise, what is going on with you guys this week? How are you holding out? Um, well, there's a war starting or in, in progress. So that's what I'm interested in discussing, I guess. You don't say. Too. Yeah. Which, which war would you be speaking of, just in case people are uh, buried under a rock at the moment? Uh, Ukraine getting invaded by Russia. Okay. Um, I'm cut. Ca- I am not well educated enough to know exactly what all this hullabaloo is about. And I was, I was hoping that you or, or KS could like fill me in on the backstory on the lead up to this as best you can. If you know, my, my very basic analysis is that the West has been pushing for uh, other countries around Russia to become more uh, pro-Western, and uh, Russia doesn't like that, and they haven't liked that for a long time. They made it clear that they didn't want uh, NATO to influence or uh, try to get more countries in, in inside NATO uh, or join NATO. So, um, and uh, there, so the U.S. has been, I, th- I think, uh, you know, manipulating Ukraine's politics for a long time. And uh, there's going to be some, you know, blowback from that. And that's, I think that's what this is about. Okay. And so there, and there's some other things too, you know, geographical and uh, uh, language things going on. So at one point, um, Ukraine made the uh, language of uh, Russia, Russian, Russian language, uh, b- before they were, you know, had multiple languages in the country, and and somehow they, they, uh, they tried to make it, uh, you know, the Russian language not uh, a legal re- uh, language there or something like that. But anyway, it pissed off some people, and the the, the, the separatists uh, in the eastern Ukraine are mostly Russian speaking, and um, there was a lot of conflict there. Uh, probably a lot more conflict than the U.S. media would like us to know about. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah. And so Russia responded by saying, oh, well, we're going to do a, a peacekeeping mission and, uh, you know, move troops into uh, eastern Ukraine and, you know, to to protect them, you know, whether they wanted it or not. But, okay. Um, so there, there are more sympathetic people, Russians, in eastern Ukraine and... 
you know, I don't know if they should be broken off and, uh, you know, added to Russia or not, but uh, that's where kind of where we are. And that might have been the more intriguing piece of news that I heard this week, because, again, I'm ignorant. And so I didn't understand why it was a big deal or how it was going to play out. Um, the, the, the two, I'm going to say separatist regions that were given authority or given recognition by Russia. We're like, okay, these two breakoff countries are now recognized by Russia as their own thing. And again, without knowing what was going on behind the scenes, I go, well, that's still weird, right? If they're trying, if they're trying to gain more land and invade and take over, right, then why would they give recognition to these two separatist countries? Why not just reclaim them? Um, there, there is a lot of drama about the the nego- negotiations for the you know, end of the Cold War. It was supposed to be. Um, that NATO wasn't supposed to expand uh, east at all, and and that's what they keep trying to do. And so, um, uh, so okay. so to get to get around the, the legal you know question of you know can Russia uh, go into Ukraine? Well, if if there was a change in government, or if, you, if the Ukrainian state isn't the same Ukrainian state that they agreed not to go into. And he says, "Well, it's 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 fair game now because it's it's not the same thing it used to be." Um, okay, so he's saying so, the treaty is off, and I'm taking right. it back. Um, I don't know if he's necessarily taking it back, and that's the the part we don't really know. Um, What's the purpose but, of invading? What, well, to basically just mess things up. Okay, um, the U.S. was trying to you know, either incorporate them or make them more pro-Western. And, you know, you know, end game is we, we would have, you know, nukes in Ukraine and, and Russia definitely doesn't want that. You know, same way we, we wouldn't want nukes in Mexico or Canada or Cuba uh, from, 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 yeah, from the Chinese or the, okay. Or the Russians. So, yeah. um, So that's basically what it is, you know, and the attitude of the West is like, Oh, well, we can't talk to them. They're the bad guys. And so, um, oh, so we're doing this nonsense again. Yeah. And in the military industrial complex, I think wants that to happen because then they can, well, you have to have a bad guy to uh, prepare for. Um, so you, you, you make it that way. You make it so. Okay. And yeah. Cause the other, the other thing that seemed odd to me, right? Like I'm not, I'm going to keep, uh, I'm going to keep saying that I'm ignorant is if, if Russia doesn't want to be, near NATO countries, right? I don't see how taking over the Ukraine helps them. Cause if they, if they, I know you said they don't want well, to reclaim it, but if they did, right. they'd be pressed up against NATO countries anyway. Right. They, they would just be, extend their own border to, to a NATO border. That would be like a worst case scenario. So, so more likely it would be the same type of thing that the U S would do. They would go into a country, mess it up and install a pro Russian uh, government. Okay. But st- so it would be a pro-Russian government in the Ukraine, right? Not a Ukrainian government, but also not uh, reincorporated as part of Russia. Yeah, that's what I assume. Okay, and what happens to these two uh, uh, outskirt countries that he granted recognition to? Like they just stay their own thing? Like they don't get? <laughs> yeah, they I, don't get. I, and I think that's I think that's what the misconception is is that is, is that he's trying to 
expand Russia. I don't really know if he is or not. Like that's the thing. It's it's kind of his his ball game now because he's the one making yeah. the moves, right? So, <laughs> well, if it's we'll, a we'll if, find out if it's like, a if misconception, it's, super, it's fair, right? Because like that's why you invade places. You know, no. Why why has the U.S. invaded all the places it has? It uh, wasn't to expand the U.S. Well, you, you can say that, but it's to expand the U.S. empire, not necessarily to the ex- expand the continental United States, right? Like a, con- a country that's in conflict, has belligerent action going on, cannot join NATO. Um, this played out in 2008 when Georgia was being was entertaining joining NATO, and then Russia invaded two provinces, uh, Ocasia and South Ossetia, two provinces of Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, and um, occupies them. Okay. And they've remained that way. And it prevents NATO, NATO from... NATO, by its own agreement, does not uh, admit a country that's currently in belligerent action. So this makes it impossible for Ukraine, of course, also to join... Uh, NATO. So this is political malicious compliance as a strategy from Vladimir Putin and Russia. He did it in Georgia, uh, obviously, obviously successfully. So it's <laughs> and and also you have to say that uh, well, it's got a long history because back in 1930s, the older generation of Ukrainians remember how seven million of their population was starved to death by the um, by the Soviet Union. So they they have a Tremendous, uh, long-running hatred of uh, control by by um, Soviet Union, and in recent years, but but also they replaced uh, they they moved when people died and were sent off to the gulag. They were sent in a lots of Russian population, especially into the eastern parts of Ukraine. They have more loyalty to Russia than they do to Ukraine itself. Well, I think those are the two breakaway regions that I read about earlier this week. Correct and the Crimea. Okay, and the Crimea. Yeah, that's right. And um, frankly, I think they ought to all just be broken off so they don't have to all be under one government rule. But back in 2014, there was a president of Ukraine who was very sympathetic to Russia, and when the population, uh, you know, rose up in protest, not the whole population, but a lot of people wanted to join the European Union. And they, uh, this rebellion, which was also fomented by the Western uh, powers, encouraged this uh, rebellion. I don't know exactly in what ways, uh, you know, may have been just verbally, or, but it was also very likely a lot of um, intelligence and support of other ways too. Anyway, they threw out the, the president who had been democratically elected I mean, even with all the corruption and everything that is involved with an election, it was still he was still the legitimate, a uh, legitimized uh, president of Ukraine. He was favorable to Russia, and he was thrown out in 2014. And that's what's rankled with um, Putin, because now, you know, the Western powers have the upper hand in Ukraine, talking about uh, membership in European Union, membership in NATO, and. Um, and he decided to pull the Georgia on him, on them. Which well, if, is the if it worked in Georgia, why not? It did. It worked in Georgia. Seems like an effective strategy to keep things more or less the status quo in his favor, right? Like, I, 
Yes, but I mean, there's going to be enormous cost. It remains to be seen how effective these uh, sanctions and um, and the cost of the war in terms of lives and money is going to be for him. Okay, but he he survived Georgia without without any taint at all. It seems. Yeah, because I haven't i I probably was aware of that at the time, but it means nothing to me outside of this context. Like if you said, "Oh yeah, the Russian invasion of Georgia," I wouldn't know what year you were talking about or why. Yeah, I'm, and most people don't. And I'm guessing that he expects that this will put an end to any kind of uh, conversation about Ukraine joining NATO. Of course, all the more reason for Ukraine to want to join NATO, but um, it'll put an end to the possibility of it. He'll withdraw. Um, he keeping those two separate. Uh, provinces, one in the east and then the Crimea. Um, and um, soon the sanctions will be lifted. Europe wants his oil. Hawaii gets a third of its oil from from Russia. Oh, right now. So you guys are about to get a big jump in gas prices. Yeah, and ironically that's because uh, Hawaii can't use, Jones Act, can't use non-Jones Act ships to get it from the mainland. They could get it from California much more cheaply, except for Jones Act ships, which makes it too expensive, and it's cheaper to get from Russia than from California. There was there was news of a California gas station that pushed over six bucks a gallon this week. So I don't know. Hmm. It's I don't know what the cause of that is, but it seems pretty bad on that front as well, as far as oil shortages and prices and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I think I think most of the oil that we import gets burnt at our uh, our power stations for electricity. So okay, well, so your electricity bill is going to go up then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Man, people need the lights and so, they to get to work. Here's the question: Then should at, at this point in time, should the United States be um, government be providing all this military assistance to um, Ukraine? Oh, you mentioned before the show started some interesting comment about finally allowing legalization of gun ownership. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, if you want to jump into that article, we can. Sure. Um, but but I had I had a couple more thoughts about the Ukraine thing before we do that. Um, the first was if this is if this is all revolving around the Ukraine's desire to join NATO and Putin basically uh, monkey wrenching that by invading so now they're a conflict nation. Does is there some sort of onus on the NATO representatives to amend their fucking policy <laughs> so that this tactic doesn't work? Tulsi Gabbard made an interesting observation on the Fox show yesterday, the Tucker Carlson. I guess it was yesterday or earlier this week, um, making the observation that if the United States had simply said, "Okay, we won't admit." Ukraine into NATO, then that would have eliminated Putin's um, um, driving force for for invading. Okay. In other words, the United States, NATO could have said, no, I mean, it's not part of NATO now. There's no obligation to defend it in the future. Um, And um, they could have just ended this war I mean, this this was the main pressure point that Putin was putting forward. 
And since the United States has no obligation to Ukraine, it was it would be an easy enough thing to say, yeah, they're not going to be a part of NATO. And then, therefore, the whole motive that Putin had for, for invasion would have gone away. Okay. But what what impact does that have on Ukraine then, who I guess obviously, you know, using the country, but really talking about the political leaders, um, they obviously have a desire to join NATO, right? And so they're like, well, if you join, you're going to get invaded, so we're not going to let you in, right? Kind of puts them in no man's land as well. That doesn't seem fair or right. Well, is it necessarily right for the United States to be obliged to go to war if if Ukraine gets invaded by Russia? In other words, should they join NATO? I mean, should the United States, should the U.S. citizens be obliged to um, to defend every country in the world? I mean, every country that's part of NATO. Well, I think the obvious answer is no, right? But, you know, if, if, if you're a break-off country that close to a hostile, right, does it, not, does it not behoove you to seek assistance where you can get it, right? Like, I, I, seen, I seen a quote on social media, and it said, like, if Russia lays down their arms, there's no war. Uh, if Ukraine lays down their arms, there's no Ukraine, right? So this, this is obviously a superpower versus not a superpower, right? Russia versus the Ukraine. And if you're, you know, how do I, I, I guess I want to try to simplify this. If you're getting invaded, right? And you're like, well, they're going to, they're going to take over my house. Would you not ask for help from other neighbors or other towns over going like, Hey, the bully's coming. I need your help defending them here. Otherwise they just continue on to take over the world kind of a thing. Sure. Right? If I was a Ukrainian, I'd want everybody on the whole planet to, to help me fend off Russia. Right. And you're, and you're, and so with the, the NATO question of the United States being obligated, I don't want to say there's an obligation, right? But if you go like, well, this could be worse and we may want to fight here. I don't know. I, I definitely say there's no obligation. You can ask your neighbors and they can say no. Um, but if you know, if your neighbors commit to you, like, like okay, dude, like you, you are now part of the militia, which means if you need help, we come and fight for you. And when we need help, you come and fight for us, right? Yeah, and I, I think the historical context matters. Go on. The, the, the position of Ukraine and and the 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 agreement that was set set prior uh, to end was it the was it the Cold War or 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 World War Two. Um, which one? The when when Russia when the ceasefire happened, they de- they decided, um, yeah. Um, when when NATO was formed and everything. Oh, that was after World War Two. Yeah. Yeah, and right. so there was an agreement with Russia that said, "Well, we're not going to expand further east, right?" Okay. Well, but they certainly did expand as soon as the Soviet Union collapsed. Then that's when the United States included all the, all the former Soviet republics. You know, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, uh, Poland, uh, Bulgaria, um, Romania. All of them are part of NATO now, and they used to be part of the Soviet bloc. But as soon as the Soviet Union collapsed and couldn't really do anything about it, then and then uh, of course they had a good motive those countries to to, to prevent the Soviet Union from taking them over again. At the time, Russia was way too weak to do anything about it. Now they feel strong enough to at least stop it from going the last uh, 
the last mile there. I mean, yeah. so anyway, they, Russia views the Ukraine as a as a as, you know strategic um, area, and th- they view if if it if it gets taken over by uh, NATO and and Western uh, influences, then that's game over for Russia. They, they okay. feel it that it's too close and too important for them. And so that's that's the context. So from their perspective, for, it's Western bullies that they have to like well, yes. put up a fight for at that border. But from the US standpoint, it doesn't Ukraine doesn't really matter to us that much. Okay. So we we don't need Ukraine to uh, exert influence over the world. Uh, but Russia needs it to protect Russia. So um, that's about it. Okay. Like, I so mean, it seems like so you just let Russia have it then. <laughs> you well, don't need it. They need it. it. And, that, and that's why the the I'm not going to fight over a ham sandwich if I'm not hungry. Yeah. That's that's why the conversation leading up to this makes it is, is so important because the conversation leading up to it is, is Russia saying, no, we don't agree with this. Don't do this. Um, get get out of the Ukraine, keep Western influence out of Ukraine, and we did it anyway. And and the attitude is, oh, we we'll, we can't talk to Putin because you know he can't be trusted. He's the bad guy, and and so therefore you, you make up this uh, uh, narrative, a story about about Russia, and and so then, well, uh, if you're not going to talk to them, then don't be surprised when they do something to say, oh, well. You weren't talking, so we did what we had to do. It's like, I mean, obviously he said he was, you know, capable of doing this. So, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. It's, to me, it's just a consequence of okay of a bad bad uh, Western politics. Okay, he he could have taken over Georgia, but he didn't. He he took two provinces to make his point, but those two provinces had very heavy Russian um, population. And yeah. the same thing with Ukraine. I don't think he's going to, well, of course, I didn't think he would invade. But, sorry, I may be wrong on this, but I don't think he's intending to take over Ukraine. He wants to use this as his as his point to stop Ukraine from joining the NATO. He'll definitely occupy the Russian... Um, the separatist ethnic, Separatist zones, yeah, as he's recognized them, and he's going to stay there. Um, but I, I think it would be... Well, crazy to think that he can take... Maybe he'll go to Kiev because he wants to throw out the president. I think he said that, uh, okay. that he wants to get rid of the president of, uh, of Ukraine. But the idea of occupying the whole of Ukraine as a hostile uh, country that doesn't want him there, I think he, even he couldn't be that crazy to be um, to try and attempt that. Well, how long did the U.S. war in Afghanistan go on for? Yeah, there are crazy things that happen. Uh, one other thing I just want to raise is a possibility here, too. Remember how, um, go back to 1935 when the uh, Hitler uh, made the agreement with, well, 38 maybe, uh, made the agreement with um, Neville Chamberlain, we want to just take over the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia. There, There's German ethnic minorities there who are being abused by the Czech Republic, uh, Czechoslovakia, and we just want to take over that portion and no more. And it was always thought um, that that was the big mistake of the West to allow him to do, uh, to do, you know, a certain amount of encroachment because then it was just the green light to him that well then I can take more. 
I don't see Putin trying to take over the world. I think that he's... I, I don't even think inside Russia, I don't think it's a very popular thing to do. It doesn't seem yeah, like so, it from some of the news reports. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I do expect it to end. And uh, I, I just, I mean, there's a whole bunch of unknowns. We don't know if the, the president of Ukraine will you know, uh, be killed in conflict or uh, removed somehow. But um, it, it doesn't seem like Russia is going to stay there forever. Okay. Well, from the, from the Russian standpoint, it's a pretty strong flex, right? Like right. they just invaded... So if they're not planning to stay there long term, how do you, from a tactical standpoint, how do you withdraw and still make it appear to be like a strategically strong withdrawal? Well, you, you make an agreement. Okay. So it's, I think one of the sad things is, is just the lack of communication. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why we got in, into this mess. Okay. But who was... Is who's the agreement going to be with? Is it another NATO agreement? Is it just with whoever's in charge of Ukraine at the uh, time? Are they negotiating I, I, with the U.S.? Like that also seems the, fucking bizarre. The best thing to do would would to be negotiate with Ukraine. Okay, like you see what we can do. We're going to leave now, but if you fuck up again, we're coming back. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean <laughs> that might be oversimplification, <laughs> but <laughs> <I've>, but, <laughs> you, but you also have to understand, like if. If the West uh, do, keeps doing what they're doing, say, so, "Oh yeah, we'll we'll help you from a distance." You know, oh, we'll we'll send some, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? anti-aircraft uh, shoulder-mounted sure. uh, things to you, and, and and you know, we'll just use you know use them as a proxy war forever. I mean, I I think that would be a, a bad outcome because it would just last a lot longer. Um, and Ukraine gets but, destroyed anyway because that becomes the battlefield. Sure, sure, yeah. All right. Okay, and and, and the, the the sad thing is the military industrial complex definitely wants that they want it to go. Of course, on for they do as long as possible. I think. Yeah, that's the un the unspoken thing here. It's it's of course we've ended all that uh, military spending in Afghanistan. What's next? I can just see the boardroom thinking, "Hey, this is this is a good alternative." All right, forgive me for being neutral for a moment, then. But l- during the lead up to this. Would it not have been smart to like buy stock in some of those weapon manufacturing companies uh, if it was on the horizon? Them, so what's that? I haven't kept track of them, so I don't know. Okay, Halliburton was it Raytheon, whatever? I read somewhere that there were like fifty different uh, military contracting companies with the Pentagon at the beginning of the war of the Afghan war, and that by the end of the Afghan war, it had been consolidated into maybe three or four company hands. So okay. It, yeah. I'm just saying like one of the one of my go-to lines is like someone's going to make money it might as well be you. Right? So if if you if you were paying attention to this and you could like you were predicting some sort of this is the outcome, right? Why not throw a little cash in that direction, place a bet on yourself and make some coin. That's all. All right, KS, you yeah, asked about the especially article. Especially in especially in times of um where you expect the rest of the economy to go down, you you want to um, you want something that's um, depression-proof. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be the war industry. I mean, it's it's a little, it's a little, it's a it's a bit of a downer, right? But why not, right? If you, mm-hmm. if you see it coming, like again, there's people are going to make money from this, right? Like piggyback on that and make some yourself. If you can be neutral about it, 
right? If you don't have like a moral opposition to funding the war machine, right? Then throw a little bit of money in, get a little money out and do something useful with the profits of your individual profits. Well, what I object to is the <laughs> compulsory tax funding of the war machine. And that's, that's where, you know, I mean, I, I suppose if, if, if it was allowed we could choose ourselves whether or not to send assistance to people in Ukraine by GoFundMe. Okay. But that's, that's illegal. We have to rely on the governments to make decisions on, uh, on who they're going to send our tax dollars to, whether we like it or not. Even, even more reason to like to, to bet in your favor then, right? Cause you're going to send the money through the government anyway, but then you get the private profits back from the, you know, like you the refill your tax- own coffers. The National Taxpayers Foundation one time calculated that the United States government was financing both sides of 14 different wars over a 20-year period of time. Um, you didn't have much choice about it, but it was fueling machine, and that was, yeah, that was their protest. And you know, the who was it? Uh, Colonel Lee, was the Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley's manager. Is that the guy? Anybody? Elvis fans? <laughs> Colonel Parker? Whatever. Whatever. Elvis Presley's manager um, at one point started selling like Elvis sucks buttons. <laughs> to be on both sides. To be it. on both sides, right? You, 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 you market to the enemies, right? But you, you profit either way. And so if I'm trying to be like neutral in all this, right? And just like, where's, where's the money to be made? And how do I get a piece of that, right? Then not worrying about the externalities and just worrying about, you know, the bottom line and boosting my personal bottom line as they, you know, debase the currency and steal money from me in all forms of fashions. Right. Just saying. Mm. Mm. All right. This time I'm doing it. You asked about the, uh, the article, the one piece of show prep I had for this, uh, KS from mm. fee Ukraine grant citizens, the right to bear arms hours before Putin's invasion. The right to bear arms has always been about Liberty and many are beginning to see in the wake of the conflict in the Ukraine. Russian soldiers flooded into Ukraine Thursday under orders from President Vladimir Putin, threatening to obliterate a peace that has existed on the European continent for more than 75 years. News reports say that cities were bombarded by land, air, and sea, and Ukrainian forces were struggling to hold ground surrounding Kiev, Ukraine's capital, against tens of thousands of Russian soldiers. Prior to the attack, Ukraine officials took steps to help Ukraine civilians protect themselves. Ukraine's parliament on Wednesday voted to approve in the first reading a draft law which gives permission to Ukrainians to carry firearms and act in self-defense, Reuters reported. The 30-day emergency order, National Review reports, would would grant citizens the right to bear arms. It would also allow the government to conscript Ukrainians between the ages of 18 and 60 adding nearly 200,000 troops to the country's defense. Next time, bear arms earlier. Uh, Permitting Ukrainians to arm themselves is a sensible measure. But as Charles Cook points out at NRO, it's also a bit late. While Ukraine has a relatively loose gun control laws by European standards, estimates suggest that only about 1.3 million firearms exist in the country, which has a population of some 43 million. This diminishes the chances of Ukrainian civilians being able to offer serious resistance, an idea that is hardly far-fetched. Stephen Gutowski points out at the reload, quote, 
The history of warfare is rife with examples of smaller, weaker, and less organized forces besting even the greatest militaries in the world. From the American Revolution to Vietnam, Iraq, and multiple wars in Afghanistan, it isn't difficult to find templates of how a Ukrainian resistance could eventually prevail if Russia attempts to capture and hold it, end quote. Speaking on CNN, Nina Lovnov-Khrushcheva, yep, got it, a professor at International Affairs at the New School in New York, also said small arms could be decisive. If every Ukrainian takes a gun, Russians don't have a prayer. She told John Berman, I mean, the military can fight, but you Ukrainians are really ready today. Ukrainian leaders apparently agree. The government on Thursday took an unusual step of issuing thousands of automatic weapons to civilians following the issuance of its emergency order. Unfortunately, the likelihood of serious resistance is low because the Ukrainian government embraced the right to bear arms so late. Next time Cook points out, bear arms earlier. The true palladium of liberty. Cook's words could be construed as flippant, but his point is a deadly serious one. The founding fathers enshrined the right to bear arms in the Second Amendment of the Constitution, and they made it clear that they were not granting citizens the rights, uh, but codifying them what was natural right. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. James Madison, the father of the Constitution, explained in 1789, a well-regulated militia composed of the boys of the people, trained to arms, is the best and most natural defense of a free country. As some astute observers pointed out on social media, the Second Amendment was never about hunting or even self-defense in a civil sense. It was always about liberty. This may be considered as the true palladium of liberty. The legal scholar Tucker St. George wrote in 1803, the right of self-defense is the first law of nature. In most governments, it has been the study of a rulers to confine this right within the narrowest limits possible. Wherever standing armies are kept up and the right of the people to keep and bear arms is, under any color of pretext whatsoever, prohibited, liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. These sentiments were echoed decades later by Supreme Court Justice, Justice Joseph Story in Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. The right of the citizens to keep and bear arms has justly been considered as the palladium of the liberties of a republic, since it offers a strong moral check against the usurpation and arbitrary powers of rulers, Story wrote, and will generally, even if they are successful in their first instance, enable the people to resist and triumph over them. It's wonderful that Ukrainian officials finally sought to extend the full natural right to bear arms to their people. The only tragedy is that it took so long. Uh, end of the article. So your thoughts on this? Uh, too late? Just in time? Will it work? <laughs> well, too late. I mean, clearly it's not just having a gun in your hand, but it's being competent at using it that matters. Absolutely. And and not just competent at shooting the gun, but thinking about the strategies of what are you going to do to resist res, uh, resist people. And I, I, I like to reflect on uh, people in the United States, gun owners in the United States that I think would, for the most part, be very, very adept at handling. Um, I mean, consider conscripts coming in on a in the Russian military. Yes, they've got great weapons and all that, but they're new and green and probably not nearly as as um, as capable of fighting as guerrilla fighters throughout history, as they pointed out in that article, the American Revolution, and and then others in Vietnam and Afghanistan. Um, uh, point out the, the tremendous 
value of guerrilla fighting against regular armies. My fear with this is that there's going to be some anti-gunners going, see, you don't need the guns because when you'll need the guns, the government will give them back to you, right? Like there, there's another, this, this article mentioned it in passing, but there was another article uh, that basically said that they were handing out, you know, 10,000 automatic rifles to the, to the people to like defend your town, defend the Ukraine, right? And, you know, that's not a lot for a country of 43 million or whatever, but it just, it, you know, it's like, well, the government has them, right? And now they want you to use it in their defense. So that's when they'll reissue them to you. So average citizens, you know, for on, on an everyday basis, you don't need the right to keep and bear arms because when the time is right, we will hand you what you need from the government. I think there's 18 million in Ukraine, but okay. I thought the article, I thought I read somewhere in the article that said 43. Maybe. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, but good point about the yeah. people having guns uh, at the last minute, uh, probably and only 10,000 of them. I think uh, the U S <laughs> is in a much better position to, <laughs> to defend ourselves. Um, yeah. Somebody yeah. asked me a question recently. He said, would, would I defend Ukraine? And I said, well, probably not because it's, it's kind of like, it's really corrupt over there. <laughs> so yeah. I'd probably just try to leave. <laughs> they're, they're the ones laundering all the Biden money. Right. <laughs> yeah. Frankly, there probably isn't all that much difference between being ruled by Zelensky or being ruled by Putin. I think that there's uh um, I mean, we can have a great, greater sympathy for Zelensky. After all, he's a comedian as opposed to um, Putin having been former KGB. Um, but uh, I've heard, now they, they were, I, I don't know it from any other source, but Tulsi Gabbard said in her um, talk about Zelensky is that he uh, shut down media, three media outlets that were in opposition to him. He arrested and imprisoned people who were his opponents in the last election. And really, I haven't enough knowledge about it, but that's part of the thing. You know, why would we side with people that we don't know enough about um, to, to say, oh, well, we're going to champion their freedom? I don't know that they really have that much. Uh, I don't know that how it's that much different than Russia today. Yeah, well, now that they have the right to bear arms, now that they, they can be <laughs> just like us, and we should, <laughs> we should support them. <laughs> my, okay, so I'm just going to share this. My general fear when it comes to, like, the average American's ability to defend themselves um, is the mentality that goes along with it, right? Like, yeah, you yeah. not only have to have the weapon be, you know, moderately trained in how to use it, but you have to be willing to pull the trigger and take a life. I, I think there's a difference between uh, having your own government come after your guns and, and, and uh, having uh, somebody that speaks a different language, uh, you know, coming into your country and pointing guns at you. Oh, yeah. I think uh, definitely a big difference. Um, yeah. yeah. They'll, they'll definitely <laughs> shoot Chinese troops. <laughs> However, I don't... I don't necessarily see Chinese troops invading as the bigger threat to like the average American's liberty so much as the actual American government as it stands right, right now. Yeah, the, the the biggest threat to most people is their own government. Yeah. And and up until recently that was the case in the Ukraine because you didn't even have the right to bear arms. 
and when the and yeah and they did that uh, when the taliban took over afghanistan too right like when they when they took that back they're like okay turn in your guns we'll protect you now <laughs> so it's you know it's, it's a tried and true method man like it works uh but i just i know when when if if there's ever an internal conflict in the united states and it's actually american troops like enforcing some sort of martial law on you know law-abiding american citizens uh, they will definitely be smart enough to not station troops in their hometown right because you know those people you grew up with those people you shopped at those stores but you know you will you will get stationed elsewhere to maintain that illusion of us versus them um and with the with the mindset being built into the average American people is like, these are the troops that protect freedom. Uh, they'll be less likely to fight back. Um, but I had, you know, I, I had a quote unquote friend years ago who was like joined like the national guard. And I said, you know, what would you do if it was like you on one side and me on the other side? And they gave you the order to shoot. And he said, I'd shoot you because I was ordered to do so. And I went, damn, thanks for the honesty. But it really, it really illustrates the mentality and the brainwashing that they put into the the minds of the actual troops. Like they've confiscated guns from American citizens already. They'll have no trouble doing it again. And I think it's going to be, my gut feeling is that it's going to be prohibitively difficult for the average American to fire on American troops. But that seems like a bigger threat in my mind than a Chinese or Russian invasion. And so I don't care how much guns they have or how well trained they are, you know, if if they line up the sights and balk at pulling the trigger, right, the the troop at the other end of that at the un, other end of that scope is not going to have the same problem. Fair. Okay. All right. I have other articles. Or is is there more to say on the Ukraine? No. No. All right. Headlines. Then the rest of the headlines. Uh, headline: The FBI seized almost one million dollars from this family and never charged them with a crime. Uh, headline, the third party. That's all I'm going to say. Headline, the privilege of getting punched in the face. Uh, headline, young Americans more supportive of cancel culture, also more afraid of it. Uh, headline, why America's illegal immigration problem is a blessing in disguise. And finally, headline, Chicago's new basic income program will open to residents seeking cash assistance in April. Right around the corner. Any of those jump out at you? Uh, no, you pick. All right, let's do this one then, since this is since we have KS. Uh, you're still there, right, KS? Yeah, yeah. All right, right. good. All right, just making sure. Sometimes you, you, you jet out a little early. The third party, right up your alley. Mm. Americans have lived with a two-party political system for so long that it's natural to assume that the founders designed the system this way. They didn't. Not only is the Constitution uh, mute on the subject of parties, the parties themselves aren't even governmental entities. They are nonprofit corporations. The same parties whose members decry the excess of capitalism and the evils of corporations are themselves corporations. And those two corporations have formed a cartel that prevents competing parties from being anything more than fringe players. For a party's candidate to be taken seriously, the candidate must have a place in the televised presidential debates. To get on the stage, a candidate must receive at least 15% support among voters in national polls. But to receive significant report, 
uh, excuse me, but to receive significant support in the polls, a candidate needs to appear on the debate stage. <laughs> Who created this catch 22? The commission on presidential debates. It gets worse. Contrary to its name, the CPD isn't a governmental body. It's a nonprofit corporation established <laughs> by the democratic and Republican parties. Any other corporations that colluded to bar competitors like this would be charged with antitrust violations. And collusion among political parties is worse than collusion in the private sector. When private companies collude, customers at least have the option of choosing none of the above by walking away from all of them. But when it comes to electing politicians, none of the above isn't an option. Those who choose not to vote simply uh, have someone else's preferred candidate forced upon them. If there's any place a society should not tolerate collusion, it's in the political sphere. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court appears reluctant to extend antitrust law to political parties. If the Democratic and Republican parties adequately serve voters, this might be a less pressing concern. But evidence shows they aren't serving voters, and with each passing year, they appear to do less. In 2004, American voters were evenly split among Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. By January of 2021, the number of Americans self-identifying as independents equaled the number identifying as Republicans and Democrats combined. <laughs> if that trend continues, independents will, uh, will constitute a supermajority of voters within the next generation. When a party can't attract a majority of voters, it no longer represents the will of the people. When the major parties combined can't attract the majority of voters, the political apparatus itself no longer represents the will of the people. We don't need to look at polling numbers to see this. Just look at our own behaviors. Many of us who voted for Donald Trump did so because we disliked him less than we disliked Hillary Clinton. And many of us who voted for Joe Biden did so because we disliked him less than we disliked Donald Trump. Our elections are no longer about choosing the best candidate, but avoiding the worst ones. At 40%, President Biden's latest approval ratings are lower than Donald Trump's at the time he lost the election. Let that sink <laughs> in for a moment. Americans disliked Donald Trump so much, they booted him out of office. Yet today, they dislike Joe Biden even more. Once upon a time in America, voters came together and selected a president for all of us. But at least since President Obama, half of us have taken to declaring the winner not our president. Americans no longer act like one people choosing a president. We act like two people choosing competing presidents who alternate holding power. We got here because the two major parties have drifted away from the plurality of Americans. More and more Americans don't identify with either of the major parties, and the major parties won't allow a third party to compete on a level playing field. The time is ripe for a third party to replace one of the other two. As Lincoln's Republican Party replaced Henry Clay's Whig Party, which replaced Hamilton's Federalist Party, and a Jackson's Democratic Party replaced Jefferson's Democratic Republican Party, it's time for a third party to replace one of today's major parties. There is a rare opportunity here for the Libertarian Party, but it's one they will squander to their detriment and ours. The Libertarians have no Lincoln, Clay, or Hamilton. The Libertarians have no great leader because the Libertarians don't take themselves seriously. And consequently, no one else does either. Political success requires a grounding in compelling and clearly articulate uh, principles and the ability to compromise. 
The major parties lost these ingredients decades ago. They managed to hang on to power only because they control entry to the presidential debates. Libertarians have compelling and clearly articulated principles, but they will squander their opportunity to become a major party because they refuse to compromise. Too many libertarians happily reject practical ideas for better government in favor of impractical ideas for a perfect one. And in fighting over minutiae as to what constitutes a perfect government, they tear themselves apart, ending up less as a cohesive party than a loose confederation of malcontents. Their great is an enemy to the nation's good. Uh, but in this, libertarians do provide some value. The very compromise that politics demands erodes principles. An erosion of principle is what lies at the heart of the decay in the major parties. The Democratic and Republican parties have ceased to be association of voters upholding principles and instead have become electoral machines delivering preferred outcomes to the highest bidders. Neither pursues what's right, they pursue what they want. In the face of necessary compromise, someone needs to keep a steady light shining on principle. On their present course, libertarians will never rise to power as a political party, but as keepers of philosophical principle, they may well provide guidance to the third party we desperately need. What is certain is that either a viable third party must soon emerge or the two major parties will split the country as they continue desperately to hold to power in the name of an ever-shrinking minority of the people. Uh, end of the article. So, your thoughts, Libertarian Party, squandering it? Or should we just let the country split and let, you know, keep it going down that direction of even more splits in the future? I thought the Civil War already started. <laughs> Civil War Two, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, I don't know. I think the uh, the author. I mean, his heart is in the right place, or her heart is in the right place, his. but uh, mixes together an awful lot of different conflicting problems. Okay, he starts off with one that is really good, and then ends one with that's I think not really good. The first is that yeah, the presidential debates are very important for exposure and identity in a, in a race. I mean, there is, that's one of the major obstacles. There's lots of obstacles to a third party getting started in the United States. One is the winner-take-all system here compared to almost every other country of the world having parliamentary systems where you get a foothold even with a minority of, of votes. Here you don't. You've got to get 51% before you have any kind of representation. Yeah. Um, the the uh, presidential debates, I remember in 2004, Michael Bardnarik and Joe Cobb, the Green Party candidate and the Republican, I mean the Libertarian Party candidate, um, tried to challenge this presidential debate commission. They uh, saw that it was a government-funded venue of the city of Tempe and the University of Arizona that were hosting the debates, and they went to the Arizona Superior Court to get a... Uh, um, show cause order why they should exclude other candidates who are legitimate on the ballot if it's a tax-funded uh, venue. So they got a show cause order. They couldn't go to Washington, D.C. because the Presidential Debate Commission closed their office. So they went to the debate that was preceding this at St. Louis. And when they tried to enter into the venue to issue this show cause, to reveal this show cause order, they were arrested, handcuffed, um, taken down to jail, 
uh, fingerprinted and held overnight until the next day. And the media didn't even cover it, didn't even mention it. Of course it. not. So, of course, this is what I'm, what I'm saying is that, of course, yes, this uh, presidential debate thing is, is crucial, but so are other things. And so I find it kind of trivializing libertarians saying, oh, well, then their problem is that they refuse to compromise. Well, no. Compromise of all the principles is what got the other parties completely um, whacked, you know, that they, they don't mean anything anymore. You, they, if they were allowed to run a normal candidacy, um, then people would be attracted to a candidate. In fact, there would be more appealing candidates who were willing to run if they felt that there was some point to it. But right now, of course, there, there are a lot of uh, factions and, and um, you know, um, but that's because the, the party has been reduced to, um, you know, uh, more of a debating society and an educational platform than it has been really an effective political tool. So the, the, the best way for libertarian ideas is through think tanks and ideas and journalism and media, books, whatever else, um, rather than the political arena. But it's still one place where it attracts other people of like mind together. That's how they meet, and that's where they discuss and deliberate. It's, I think it, it still raises issues on the debate platform uh, when they are allowed. Um, but I think, it, uh, I think it's wrong to, com- to say, oh, the problem with libertarians is that they refuse to compromise. That's the whole point. That's the, they, they, are, they sign this pledge, uh, this non-aggression principle when they join the party. And asking them to compromise that uh, just to get along, well, that's, that's the, the way to certain anonymity. Okay. Fair. Do you think that the third party that's going to eventually take over one of these two or, you know, surpass or usurp or whatever uh, exists today? Or is it something that needs to be built and we're talking decades out for it to get any traction or foothold in the political arena? No, the the rules that exist today right now built by the two major parties prevent a third party under any circumstance of getting traction or foothold, Okay, in my opinion. Well, the the article seems to uh, hinge that on presidential debate success, right? And you're saying that through think tanks, and I'm going to use the term grassroots, organizing and getting people together, that there's another way to get that support. Like a third party could put forth a candidate that because of the grassroots movement of libertarians um, could somehow acquire that 15% to get them on the debate stage. So if, if it's... I think it was a, there was a better chance of Ron Paul as a Republican getting uh, elected than Ron Paul, the libertarian presidential candidate, getting elected. He was okay. unheard of uh, as libertarian. But as a Republican, he drew a lot of people to him. He had a platform for the debates during the primaries. Um, he had, uh, and he drew a lot of people to his ideas. They weren't okay. libertarians before. I guess that that's sort of a problem here in New Hampshire for uh, the governor of this state. Um, insofar as he is on record in some form or fashion, I don't remember what, what it was in, um, basically lamenting all the liberty-minded individuals joining the Republican Party. Right. And like they're coming in here and they're not Republicans. Get the hell out of my party. Uh, but you're in, you're 
are you endorsing that tactic then of just taking over one of the two established parties over a period of time by just getting more liberty-minded individuals into those parties to get to those political offices? Sure, I think that would be fine. I, I personally think that individuals need to choose whatever path towards liberty they are most well-suited to. And there are some people who are really well-suited to the political arena, and that's a strategy that makes a lot more sense. Like here in Hawaii, people say, oh, well, uh, libertarians ought to join the Republican Party if they want to have a, have a voice. I say, no, join the Democratic Party. They've got the, you know, everybody's a Democrat here. They vote for Democrat no matter what their thinking and feeling is. They, you know, the, if, you're, if you're thinking of joining a party so that you have a bigger platform, uh, then um, the Democrat Party in Hawaii is certainly more effective than joining the Republican Party in Hawaii. Okay. And in New Hampshire, I'd say it's probably just the reverse. I suppose that Republicans have much more of a platform than Democrats. I don't know New Hampshire, but I think right now they do. Um, but New New Hampshire is, I want to say, at least recent historical memory, purple. And so for a while, there were Liberty candidates on both sides, and then Republicans started to dominate a little bit, and so that's where they gravitated to, and the Democrats. Man, you want to jump in on this, MC? The, the Democrats themselves, with the, their left-leaning politics and policies across the board, have kind of gone a little wacky, and so it's much less palatable to average people. Sure. I don't know what you want me to say. <laughs> I, I think amongst the three of us here, you have the most disdain for lefties. I might sure. be wrong. <laughs> but I think you can even... I mean, I, I think... Um, MC, when he starts to talking to lefties, the reason that he talks with them is he realizes that he, he feels that there are uh, logical openings that anybody has. I mean, if you if he's a lefty for a reason, you find out what the reason is, and then you you tap those those reasons. Now, I guess I think MC likes toying with uh, lefties, but I bet that he finds these openings where he can get in and make a point and um you know make some some real conversions without them even knowing it at the moment they may know it within a year or a year a month no i I don't think i convert anybody but what what i do is i argue (laughs) with i argue with idiots on 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 the internet and and uh, you know bystanders might see the debate happen yeah and there's especially like with the the climate debate they say oh you know the one degree is the worst thing ever but then you point out to them that you know the the planet's greener than it's than it's been there's more tree coverage and more uh uh, uh, food production uh even in places like india where they need it the most um and and so this one degree of warming that we've had in the last hundred years is like well is that really a bad thing like that's that's more important than you know worrying about some some number you know is a is the human condition so um so so yeah other people will see that debate and and then they can say okay is it worth uh spending my my life fighting uh against plant food <laughs> actually he makes an excellent point it's the person listening in on the debate that sure. is the real um um winner on that Right. And, and the only thing I will add to that then is when, when you see someone from the right debating someone from the left at this stage, the person on the right seems more clear-headed and rational 
than the person on the left. And that's why I said kind of a little wacky. So it's easier well, to relate. Necessarily depends but, on the depends on their issue. Or, yeah. The left has has gone far left, and 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 the center has moved a little bit right. Yeah, in the last four four to eight years significantly. So, um, and that and that's what I you know I predicted that uh, the left is going to lose massively pretty soon. Okay, um, and it doesn't seem like uh, the war in Ukraine is helping. Biden out either. I, I don't know what he plans on doing to uh, make himself seem more important or if he does it all. Hopefully not. Yeah. Um, We're it, from what I see on the news, or I mean, I don't watch the news a lot, but I, for what little I've seen, it seems like the Republicans are trying to, uh, during this Ukraine war, trying to say, well, Biden's not doing enough. Uh, he's, he's not, I mean, he's doing a bad job because they got to say he's doing a bad job. Well, how? Well, he's just not doing enough support he wasn't strong enough in his support of ukraine okay. and all that sort of thing so i think it's gonna it's not gonna be a happy outcome uh from biden doing badly a lot of the memes coming out right now is the the call for trump again like this would not have happened under trump <laughs> and as we get to the end of this program like any final thoughts on whether this whether you think the outcome would have been significantly different under a trump presidency or a future trump presidency I think Trump had the better instincts in regard to Russia and Ukraine. Uh, however, I don't know how much he was really in charge of the military industrial complex going into that in the first place. Okay. So I don't really know. So um, could have dodged a bullet by getting voted out then in this regard. Uh, c- could have been, uh, but there's, there's also history of the the left being more heavily involved in in uh, foreign policy in the Ukraine anyway. So okay. the whole, the whole Biden uh, intervention in, in Ukraine politics and the, and the scandals with uh, Hunter Biden and stuff uh, point to that. Right. And so I don't, I mean, like instinct wise, I think uh, the, the uh, communication lines would be more open between Trump and, and Putin than, uh, than with the Biden crew because they've made their, uh, their assumption that, uh, you know, Putin bad and we can't talk to him. So what do you do if you can't talk? Well, you just do whatever you got to do to make your yeah. point. Well, and Trump was all about the talking, right? Like, Oh, sure. Yeah. The, the great so I, negotiator. I, you know, if I had a choice, would I, would I rather see what, you know, if we could go back in time and, and put Trump in, I would rather have that. But, um, you know, <laughs> Who knows what would happen? So we're just kind of, we're here where we are. Speculation. I think that probably Trump would have been less predictable than Biden. And therefore, um, someone who is impulsive and unpredictable is more worrisome. That's what Nixon always uh, uh, touted as his strength during the Vietnam War. Be unpredictable. You know, do, you know. And I, I think that Putin was probably much more certain of how he, he could play Biden and now he could play Trump. So, yeah. So in that respect, Trump would have, it would have had a possible more peaceful outcome under Trump. Yeah, possibly. I think Putin would have been more reluctant, not knowing how Trump would react. Fair enough. But then even the American people didn't know how Trump would react either. I guess that's a, Maybe even Trump didn't know how Trump would react. (laughs) Would have been a positive in this situation, I guess. Final thoughts. (laughs) 
That'll do it for us then. You guys know where to find us. Anarchistexperience.com on Telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience or t.me slash the anarchistexperience. And if you would like to contribute to this show financially, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchistexperience. Thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace. Aloha. Aloha.